You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Dr. Amy Ziegart. She's an associate professor at UCLA's School of Public Affairs. Uh, she served in the Clinton administration and later worked on the Bush campaign. So she's been on both sides of the aisle. And in the uh, Clinton administration, she served on the National Security Council. So she's had an overview of the intelligence world. And she has seized that as a topic. Uh, she wrote a very uh, informative book called Spying Blind, the CIA the FBI, and the origins of 9-11. Amy, you, your thesis in that book, as much as anything, was that while the FBI and CIA are staffed with dedicated, and in many cases, and, and experienced in some cases, not experienced in others, people, you feel that there are organizational flaws, flaws in the system, that are impeding the work of those two agencies. Our concern, of course, I think in intelligence is we don't have time to um, to have such flaws. In other words, such things need to be corrected if we're going to keep up with the cyber world and these increasingly knowledgeable and able terrorists who are coming at us. So I wonder if you could you could touch on that and perhaps. Uh, illustrate what you're getting at when you talk about these organizational flaws. Sure. Well, what I say in the book is that there are wonderfully talented people in the intelligence community, and what I do is I look at the organizational deficiencies that led good people to make poor decisions. So in the book, I go through 23 concrete examples of operational opportunities that the CIA and the FBI had and failed to use to penetrate the 9-11 plots. Let me just give you one. So we know that 19 days before 9-11, the FBI gets word that two uh, suspected al-Qaeda terrorists, who turn out to be two of the 9-11 hijackers, are probably in the United States and need to be found. But the FBI decides that this manhunt should only be the responsibility of one of its 56 offices, the New York office. Uh, it gives it the lowest level of priority, and it hands the manhunt to an inexperienced FBI agent who had just finished his rookie year. What I find is if you look at this through a broader organizational lens, you realize that individuals didn't screw up in this case, that all of these problems with the manhunt were the natural results 
of organizational weaknesses. So why did the manhunt just go to one field office instead of being a nationwide manhunt? Because every FBI case went to only one lead field office. The FBI was a highly decentralized organization. Why was it given such low priority? Because the FBI saw itself as a crime-fighting organization. So all intelligence cases preventing a possible future attack rather than solving a past crime, all of those cases naturally went to the bottom of the priority pile. And why was it given to an inexperienced agent? because he was an inexperienced agent. And the Bureau convictions made careers before 9-11. I would argue it's still largely true today. And so the least desirable job, finding two suspected terrorists, went to the least experienced agent. Uh, that's a good example. Um, one thing I would ask you now, I, I know those two suspected terrorists take on enormous importance from the perspective, perspective of Monday morning. In other words, the whole issue of Monday morning, we look back and we say, right. gee, look at this, isn't this a bad thing? And uh, somebody at the FBI, uh, and using the FBI right now, has to prioritize things. I don't know what other things were on the list, um, but I think at the time, perhaps a, the presence of two suspected terrorists uh, might have been pretty low on the priority list of things they had to do. It's a great point you raise this question of hindsight bias, and it's one of the arguments I hear a lot from intelligence officials. It's easy now for outside academics sure. like me to say that we should have been able to capitalize on these opportunities after the fact. But it's quite another thing to argue that in the moment these intelligence agencies should have done a better job. So I thought about that a lot. And what I do in my research is I looked at in the 1990s, in the 10 years before 9-11, what did the intelligence community understand about the threat? What did they understand about, and elected officials as well, about the need for reform of intelligence agencies, particularly the CIA and the FBI? And did we get from here to there in time? So one of the things I did, uh, and I call it my e-Hollywood true story, intelligence reforms from the 90s, where are they now? I tracked every reform recommendation made by any major counterterrorism or intelligence report over a 10-year period, more than 500 reform recommendations. 340 of those focused on ways to improve the intelligence community. And of all those recommendations, the vast majority focused on the same four problems. And they're the exact same problems that 9-11 Commission found and Congress found after 9-11. Problem number one, information sharing weaknesses and for one agency to let another agency know what it had. Problem number two, the inability of all of our different intelligence agencies, now there are 16 of them, then there were about a dozen, to act in a coordinated fashion. Problem number three, weaknesses in setting priorities. And problem number four, weak human intelligence capabilities. So these 340 reform recommendations targeted what turned out to be crucial deficiencies in the intelligence community years before 9-11, and they failed to get implemented before then. So less than 10% of them were implemented at all. And for those who like to study the ways of Washington, the reforms that are usually implemented first are the easy ones. They're the study the problem more recommendations, and that's exactly what happened. Those are very good points. Let me just ask you one other question. I know you've thought a lot about the congressional oversight as well. <clears throat> there were recommendations, as I recall from the commission, for Congress to look at how it conducts oversight with the view of possibly forming something like the Atomic Energy Commission. It was bipartisan and and consisted of, uh, of members from both sides. 
And uh, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think Congress has implemented anything that was recommended by the commission. Is that right? Congress has implemented almost nothing. In fact, I'm writing a paper right now that's part of a book uh, that I'm writing on Congress. And I find that Congress is the least reformed part of our intelligence system today. So all those 340 reform recommendations, the only organization that didn't implement a single one was the U.S. Congress. And there are two particular weaknesses today that the 9-11 Commission and others have consistently hammered on. The first is that Congress does not develop the expertise to oversee intelligence properly. Just to give you some idea, not a single U.S. senator today has ever worked in an intelligence agency. In the House, as you know, members on the House Intelligence Committee still have limits to the amount of time they can serve on that committee. So just when they know uh, what all the acronyms mean, they have to rotate off that committee. So Congress has deliberately tied its own hands, preventing itself from developing deep expertise in intelligence. And the second problem, which Lee Hamilton, the uh, former vice chairman of the 9-11 Commission, former chair of the House Intelligence Committee talked about is that Congress doesn't wield the power of the purse because the intelligence committees, which have relatively more expertise, really don't have uh, the say over the budgets uh, that Congress needs. In what sense, when you say they don't have the say over the budget? Well, the recommendation is to actually give the intelligence committees the power of appropriations, which was what the 9-11 Commission had recommended. Uh, John McCain and others uh, suggested this a few years ago and succeeded in getting only 23 votes in the Senate for taking power away from the appropriations committee and giving it to the intelligence committees. Oh, so you're, you're talking about the division between the committees there. Yes. You know, this point about not taking the time to develop the expertise is a, one of the key points Bob Gates made. Uh, in his book, Out of the Shadows, which he did after he left uh, the CIA, where he'd been director, and before, of course, he went to defense, where he is today. But a key point was, yes, they too are good people, but they just, they don't take the time, or in many cases, they don't have the time, because they rotate out in two years, to develop enough, no enough knowledge, even if they haven't served in the intelligence world, to be able to exercise uh, appropriate, you know, close oversight. I think that's right. It has to do with incentives. I mean, I, I often joke there's no Iowa for intelligence. You know, it's not a coincidence that both senators from Iowa sit on the Agriculture Committee. They're rewarded by their constituents for being experts on agricultural issues. But there's no geographic concentration of interest that would reward a member for for taking the time that it takes to become an expert in intelligence affairs. So it's those electoral incentives that are really driving the process. You have to be a fairly masochistic member of Congress to devote the amount of time and attention to become an expert on intelligence, given that it's taking so much time away from things that would better guarantee your re-election prospects. I'd like to come back to the CIA and the FBI, but while we're on reform, let me just ask you your perception of how well the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the DNI, you feel that that's worked out? Well, I think there are two views on the DNI's office. The, the first is that the glass is, glass is half full, and I tend to be a glass is half empty kind of person. So I focus on what needs to be done rather than what has been done. Uh, the good news is that the intelligence community is operating much more as a community than it ever has before. Of course, the bad news is the bar was pretty low before 9-11. Uh, so we see real integration. I have to tell you, just today I saw a demonstration of A-Space, which is like the MySpace 
database for intelligence analysts in the classified world, and it's phenomenal. It is really a social networking tool that is enabling analysts from all over the intelligence community to collaborate on issues, in many cases on issues where they didn't even know there were other people working on them uh, to the degree that they do now. So it's, there are some exciting developments. I think my biggest concern with intelligence reform now has to do with three areas. The first is the FBI. I think the FBI has failed to transform itself into a domestic intelligence agency and is still struggling now with more mission requirements, fighting crime, and uh, dealing with intelligence, and it's not able to do it. My second concern is congressional oversight. The executive branch is only as good as the legislative branch is in overseeing it, and you can't have one without vigorous oversight by the other. And then the third is coordination with state and local officials with the rise of Homeland Security. Uh, the front lines of intelligence are, in many cases, on our in our neighborhoods, on our streets. And so that's a piece that is still very much a work in progress. You, you commented, you brought us right back to where I wanted to be, which is the FBI. Um, this, this issue of whether the FBI, uh, how successful it is. In transforming itself. Uh, this has come up time and again when Director Mueller, whom everyone seems to respect, uh, but when he goes up to the Hill, the oversight committees take him to task precisely for that. And what is the, what is the answer to that? Well, the FBI has has to has a much harder task in reform than any other agency. For all the other intelligence agencies, it's doing uh, uh, doing business in a new way. For the FBI, it's doing new business. And so I understand that the challenges are difficult. But to me, what we see is there are real cultural impediments to change. And the indicator I always look at is the FBI phone book. So whenever I talk to my friends in the Bureau, I always ask them, what does the phone book look like these days? Because typically there are only two listings in the phone book, agents and everybody else. So analysts are listed in the same category as support staff, janitors, auto mechanics. And so as long as janitors are considered second, uh, janitor, as long as analysts are considered second-class citizens next to those special agents, the FBI will never be an intelligence organization. So as you know, analysts cannot run a field office. They don't rise to the highest levels of the bureau. And, uh, and this is a huge problem for the FBI. It's one thing to say we take analysis seriously. But analysts inside the organization know as long as the culture of the bureau doesn't respect what they do, they won't be hurt. Taking that same issue, could you comment on, on it as regards CIA? CIA is a, is a little bit more tricky um, because we have, of course, both the uh, analysis side and the collection side. Uh, but those two sides have, as you know, operated simultaneously for a long time. Um, with CIA, I see a bit of a different challenge, and that is, as one intelligence official put it to me, that the CIA is now the agency formerly known as Central. So the CIA has been demoted in many respects compared to the new DNI's office. And so I think you can see uh, inside Washington some grabs at CIA turf. As Mark Twain once famously said, the best time to kick a man is when he's down. And so I think that's what we're seeing now with this presidential transition. The FBI is making a play to be more responsible for counterterrorism 
abroad. The DNI's office is asserting some control. And so there's some real concern in CIA, and I think it's legitimate that it's not quite as central as it used to be. CIA, of course, being the crucial agency that does human intelligence collection and that all-source analysis. Uh, one wonders, uh, really, uh, the clandestine service, of course, now known as the National Clandestine Service, although it's unclear to me anyway, I think to the public, what does that mean? In other words, will they start uh, approving of double agent operations in the FBI or things like that? I don't think so, but uh, one never knows. But I think there is a question of what happened to the Central, because there was a reason that initially it was called Central Intelligence. The idea after Pearl Harbor was to have one place where all the information flowed and was analyzed and then presented to the president. That has now changed. So it's a little unclear to me what does the analytical side do that gives it any kind of central uh, role. Uh, I think they still are the ones who prepare the PRB for the DNI, although he's the one who presents it. Um, but what distinguishes the, the CIA analytical uh, directorate from DIA's analytical directorate or, or, I don't know, NSA or NR, whatever, whoever has an analytical directorate. And the other issue, too, is what will that NCS, the National Clandestine Service, evolve into? It sounds almost like that will, it was always a rather dominant player at CIA, but it sounds like uh, it may just eclipse, eclipse the analytical side entirely. It's a Great question about what's going to happen inside CIA. I think there are a couple of issues that, that uh, concern me. One is that we have, on the FBI side, special agents who are now collectors of human intelligence inside the United States. Yet they don't, for the most part, have training as intelligence collectors. They work cases and arrest bad guys. That's a very different business than collecting human intelligence. So some FBI agents are now going through CIA training about how to be a good intelligence collector, but not very many of them. So that's a question. And I think you're exactly right. I can't imagine the day where FBI special agents are going to take uh, direction from the, the National Clandestine Service uh, so readily. So that's one issue of concern. The other issue is how much of our analysis do we want to have standardized and how much do we want it to be unique? So every intelligence agency has a, a different customer and they have boutique intelligence needs. At the same time, however, it's clear that we need to have some standards that cut across all these different agencies. So I think the DNI's office and the community in general are grappling with what to standardize and what to decentralize, and that's an ongoing tension. It could have interesting, uh, an interesting outcome in terms of how big the agencies are. I mean, right now the, the community is considered to be 100,000 plus. Um, <clears throat> I've heard concerns expressed about the growth of the ODNI in the sense that a lot of analysts have been pulled over there and its role was to, to oversee the community, to manage the community, so to speak, and yet there seems to be a strong analytical strength building up, and I've heard concerns expressed about that. Do you have a view on that? Well, you know, several years ago when the reform bill was making its way through Congress, I testified before the Senate, and I argued then that I thought we should not have a DNI. That And the reason was, not that I'm anti-DNI for the sake of being anti-DNI, but 
We've had this problem for the past 60 years with the CIA director who wore two hats, who had all of the responsibility for coordinating these intelligence agencies and running the CIA, um, but not the authority commensurate with that responsibility. And so my concern was we would have this bloated layer of bureaucracy that would just replicate all of those problems. And I am concerned that that has in fact happened. It's hard to imagine a lean, mean coordinating mechanism with 1,500 or more people in it, which is the one of the recent estimates I heard. Uh, and so we now have uh, you know, the DNI's office, the National Counterterrorism Center. We have a new alphabet soup of agencies. And I find it uh, paradoxical that when the principal problem before 9-11 was coordination across these agencies, our solution primarily has been let's create more agencies. You know, it, it's interesting. You're, you're, uh, you're from the other coast, as it were, and yet you obviously follow developments here very, very closely. So I'm going to ask you a very uh, a today question. One of the things that has surfaced in the media and almost immediately afterwards disappeared was the issue of who gets to pick the intelligence representative in foreign countries. And uh, there, there appeared to be some discussion between uh, the DNI uh, and uh, Admiral Blair and the, the director of CIA, Leon Panetta, over this issue, and then it promptly disappeared. I don't know if you can cast any light on what the status of that is or what your thoughts would be. I don't know what the latest in that battle is. Uh, however, it's pretty clear uh, that this was an effort by the DNI's office to make very clear that it is in charge of the intelligence community. I think the context here is this is the first presidential transition with this new intelligence structure. And so everybody knows it in town. And so there's an effort to try to make sure that your bureaucratic turf is protected. And in the DNI's case, I think this was, a, this was an example of making clear that everybody knew the DNI was in charge. Now, in point of fact, I've been told by many intelligence officials, 90 to 99 percent of those foreign posts would be staffed by CIA people anyway. So why pick the fight over the one or two positions? It was a symbolic fight for the DNI to exert its authority over the CIA, and Leon Panetta pushed back hard. Yeah. Well, he has on a number of issues, so I think he's trying to be a, I think he's uh, trying to be loyal to his workforce, and I and he's a very respected figure in this town, and uh, one can only wish him well. I know you are an associate professor, uh, which means you are constantly around younger people and, and uh, who undoubtedly seek your advice and your knowledge. And uh, we have a lot of young people who listen to the program. And I'd just be interested in, in those that express an interest, perhaps, in going to intelligence. You know, is that something you would tell them to <laughs> flee quickly with? Or, or as, what advice would you have? As critical as I am about certain aspects of the intelligence community, I think it is filled with tremendous people. And I urge many of my students to consider careers in intelligence. In fact, I just had two students who participated in a new DNI program to lure top talent into the analytic ranks. And they raved about their experience is there. There's no greater service to country than, than uh, uh, dedicating your professional career to working for the U.S. government and national security. Uh, and I think there's no more fascinating and important time to be in the intelligence business. Amy Zegard, it's been a pleasure to have you here today. And I want to again recommend your book, Spying Blind, the CIA, the FBI, and the Origins of 9-11. I know you're working on a couple of others in the intelligence field. You're doing two, not just one. I'm trying to get and, two done in the next year. 
and we wish you well, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.